Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. This morning we come to Matthew chapter 26. We're entering a new phase of the Gospel of Matthew. So let's read together from verse 1 through 16. These are the words of God. Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, that he said to his disciples, You know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not always have. For in pouring this fragrant oil upon my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him thirty pieces of silver. So from that time he sought an opportunity to betray him. Our God and Father, we pray that you would nourish us and feed us with your word now so that we might be built up as your children, that we might be faithful and bring you glory and honor. Through the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Now, if you remember, the Gospel of Matthew is built on five pillars, and those five pillars are five major discourses or teaching episodes that Jesus gives. It starts, the first one is the Sermon on the Mount, the last one is the Olivet Discourse. And each one of them uh, ends with a common uh, formula of words. They will end with, when Jesus had finished these sayings, or something very similar to that. And you'll notice you have that here in verse 1 except that Matthew here adds the word all. He says, when Jesus had finished all these sayings. And it seems that Matthew here is indicating not only that we've reached the end of the Olivet Discourse, the last of Jesus' discourse, he's signaling that this is the conclusion of Jesus' public teaching ministry. He will have other things to say. That'll be in private to the disciples. But his public teaching ministry now is at an end. And at this point, the Gospel of Matthew shifts into a new phase. That phase is announced by Jesus himself in verse 2. You know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So Jesus' crucifixion is two days away. And we're going to see the plot thicken dramatically and the pace escalate rapidly. We're going to see all sorts of characters coming in and out of the plot. 
Some of them are major characters, some of them minor, but each of them will come in with their own backstory, their own perspective, their own motives, and their own goals. And in the midst of all of these moving parts and complexity, something very simple is going to occur and something very profound. The Son of Man is going to be delivered up to be crucified, and heaven and earth will be changed forever as a result. And our text is the beginning of the story of how that all happened here at the end. The setting is Jerusalem and the area around it at the time of Passover. Now that's not happenstance. Jesus says, after two days is Passover and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified, implying that there is a reason why Jesus' crucifixion will coincide with the killing of the Passover lambs. Well, that reason is spelled for, out for us by Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, when he refers to Jesus as Christ, our Passover. Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. In other words, Christ is Passover. Christ is the one whom all the Passover lambs sacrificed over all of the centuries pointed to. So Passover is when Jesus' crucifixion has to be, because his death is the reality to which Passover has pointed from the very beginning. Now let's think about that, because there's a lot of meaning there. If you remember, the first Passover was inaugurated in Exodus, immediately before the children of Israel left Egypt. So it precipitated they're coming out of Egyptian bondage. Now, what's interesting is that by that time, God had already brought nine plagues upon Egypt in which God had demonstrated uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt his power over Pharaoh, his power over Egypt, and his power over the gods of Egypt. That was not in doubt. God was more powerful than they were. But here's the important point. That wasn't enough to free Israel. God being God, God being the only true and living God, God being more powerful than Egypt, God bringing judgment on Pharaoh and Egypt was not enough to free Israel. For that, the tenth plague and the Passover had to occur. And the tenth plague had to do with the death of every firstborn son. Now, the firstborn son in that context served as a symbolic representative of the family with all of its history and all of its hopes. So the death of the firstborn son was a representative death. It was like life as you know it is dying. It's representative of everyone's death. The angel of death was coming on the firstborn son of every family, and that's Egyptian and Israeli, okay? both of them. The angel of death is coming. And the only exception is if a Passover lamb is sacrificed in place of the firstborn and the blood is placed on the doorposts of the house. Then the angel of death would see the blood and pass over, and hence the name Passover. So the first nine plagues, as mighty and awesome as they were, were not sufficient to spare a family from death and to bring them out of slavery into freedom and into a relationship with the living God. The Passover lamb had to die to do that. 
And in order for the Passover lamb to die and the blood, blood to be applied, the family had to believe. They had to believe the word of Moses, the word of the gospel, the word of the good news of God's deliverance. They had to believe it, they had to kill the lamb, and they had to put the blood on the doorpost. Only then did life and freedom come to a household. Now, back in our text, Jesus, the true Passover lamb of God, has come. And similar to Exodus, Jesus has already demonstrated through his miracles, his healings, his casting out of demons, and even his teaching. He has already demonstrated his power over Satan and his power over all of Satan's legions of demons. But that's not enough to save anybody. That's good for Jesus. That's good for those right around him. But it does not do anything to save one person. Jesus, the Passover lamb, has to die. And his blood has to be applied. There is no other way. So he must die, and he must die on Passover uh, or the day of preparation. That's when the lambs were killed. You have to remember, the Jewish day started at sunset. And the Passover meal was a meal that was eaten at night. And so when they killed the Passover lambs in the mornings or afternoon, whenever it was, to prepare for the meal, that's actually happening the day before by Jewish reckoning. And that failure to understand this is one of the reasons why we tend to get confused about the gospel chronologies having to do with the death of, of Jesus. So Jesus is going to die on the same day in which the Passover lambs are all killed. Okay? They will be eaten. The actual Passover is the next day. In other words, after sunset. To, to us, it's the same day. To them, it's the next day. So this meal that Jesus is having with his disciples is actually the day before the normal Passover meal would be eaten. Jesus obviously will not be able to eat that with his disciples. So he is having this meal with them the day before, which is going to turn out to be the same day of preparation. They're starting at sunset. They're eating at night. Jesus is going to get arrested. He's going to be dragged before Caiaphas and Pilate and so forth. And then on that next day is when the Passover lambs are going to be slaughtered. And that's when Jesus is going to be crucified. And then the next day, that is that night, is when the actual Passover, the normal Passover meal is eaten. So the important thing to know is this. Jesus is going to die when the Passover lambs die. He's going to die on the same day. That's what has to happen, because that's how God saved the world. And this is the whole point of Passover from the beginning. But the story of how this comes about, given the fact that the rulers have decided that he must not die during Passover, is what our text tells us. And so let's delve into it. And as we go through this, I want us to notice four things in particular. And the first thing I want us to notice is the sovereignty and the love of God the Father in these events. Now, Jesus is very specific in his prophecy. His crucifixion will be in conjunction with Passover, verse 1. But the chief priests, scribes, and elders, in other words, the rulers, have decided exactly the opposite. They plan to kill him, all right, but not during the Passover, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, you have to understand what was going on during Passover. More than any other sacred Jewish feast, 
Passover drew Jews to Jerusalem from all over the Mediterranean world. One scholar estimates that the normal population of Jerusalem was around 30,000 people. During Passover, that would swell to about 180,000 people, so five times the normal population in Jerusalem. Well, the city itself can't accommodate all of those people, and so the people would camp around Jerusalem on the surrounding hillsides. And thus you have Jesus and his disciples in the nearby town of Bethany, little village. It was about a mile and a half east of Jerusalem on the southeastern slope of the Mount of Olives. Now here's the point. It would have been basically impossible to carry out a secret arrest of Jesus under those conditions, especially when the rulers don't even know where he is among 180,000 people all around Jerusalem. They don't know where he is. Further, Jesus was popular among the people. Uh, if they arrest him, if they try to find him and arrest him on these conditions, it's going to be seen. It's going to cause an uproar. Jesus is popular. The, the leaders know that from the celebration uh, that accompanied his recent entry into Jerusalem and also from the way that Jesus kind of became a champion of the common people in his debates with the leaders in which he often embarrassed them in front of the people. So these facts settle two things in the minds of the rulers. Number one, Jesus has to die. Number two, we cannot do it during Passover. It has to wait until all the crowds are gone. If we try to do it during the Passover, there's a substantial risk. The whole thing is going to backfire. The rest is going to be seen. There's going to be a big uproar among the people. We're likely going to have to back down in order to prevent a riot. And the end result is going to be we suffer embarrassment one more time. And Jesus is more popular and more powerful than ever. So we must wait until the crowds are gone. But as we've already seen, Passover is when the death of Jesus had to occur. Because that's the whole point of Passover from the beginning. So, what happened? Well, what we see here is the truth of Psalm 33. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, and the plans of his heart to all generations. Or as Paul succinctly puts it in Ephesians 1, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. So in spite of the plans of the rulers, something changes to cause them to change their plans so that Jesus, the Passover lamb, is indeed killed on the day of preparation for Passover. And what changed was the betrayal of Judas, his decision to betray. This gave the rulers the opportunity to be able to learn exactly where Jesus was, to be able to recognize him at night, and to be able to pull off if the conditions were right, pull off a secret arrest in the nighttime, and before anybody knew anything, it was all going to be over. So here we have the rulers freely deciding, freely deciding for their own evil purposes. And remember, you have different groups among the leaders. You have the chief priests who are highly political after the uh, Maccabees have... Uh, uh, deli uh, liberated uh, Judea uh, from the uh, fallout from the Greek Empire a couple of hundred years before.
the high priests became descendants of the Maccabees. They were of the Hasmonean line, which means they're not connected at all with Levi, the original high priesthood. And they have become very, very uh, political. In fact, the high priests were selected at this point by the Roman officials. The Romans decided who high priests would be. Not the Jews, not any normal myth. So, do you think the high priest is going to be somebody who is in with Rome? If he's not, he's never going to be appointed. Caiaphas, who is high priest at this time, served for over 30 years as high priest, which was a testament to just how political he was. Very political. So he's got his reasons for wanting Jesus dead. They're his personal reasons. And the high priestly family is going to be with Hymen. It's like, this guy is going to start stirring things up. He's going to bring the Romans in. We're going to be in trouble. They're going to blame me, high priest, and my family because we can't keep these people under control. We're going to lose our position and our status. He's got his reasons. Those reasons are different than reasons from others. They're different than the reasons of the scribes. The scribes are the conservatives. They're the normal uh, at odds with the high priest because the high priests are the liberals and the secularists. And so the scribes are normal, they're, they're enemies. The Pharisees and the scribes are normally enemies against the high priests and the Sadducees and so forth. But here, they're working together. But the motives of the scribes for saying Jesus has to die is completely different from the motives of the high priests. But it doesn't matter. Everybody's making their own decisions. All of these rulers are making their own decisions for their own good and sufficient reasons. And yet all of them decide to do exactly what God has decreed would be done. It is the counsel of the Lord that stands to all generations. So their free decisions do not counsel out God's decrees and His counsel and its standing. And yet God's decrees and His sovereignty, His exhaustive sovereignty over every detail and over every person does not cancel out the free decisions of these men. And what we see here is that all of our assumptions about the sovereignty of God are untrue. They're backwards. Because what do we assume? We assume the more sovereign God is, the less free we are. Isn't that true? If God ordains all things, that means we're not free. Of course, we all believe in the sovereignty of God because we all believe Romans 8.28. God works all things together for good to those who love Him, which you cannot have unless God is sovereign over all things. You can't have that promise. And Christians instinctively know that. I've never met a Christian who didn't believe Romans 8.28. I've never met a Christian who did not believe in the exhaustive sovereignty of God when they're on their knees praying. I've never met a Christian who didn't pray to a God who was completely able to change the heart of the most wicked ruler and make them think it's their idea, just like he did here. So what we start to see here with the sovereignty of God and the freedom of man is it's completely upside down from what we think. The more sovereign God is, the more free we are. How does that work? Well, that's when we run into trouble is when we start trying to say how it works. Because we can't say that. But we know that it works. And we know more than any other time in Scripture in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and the events leading up to it, we see how God's sovereignty works. We're free because God is sovereign. And His sovereignty 
is what he exercises to save. What is his, his sovereignty exercising to do here? To give his son. God so loved the world that he gave his son. That's what he's doing. He's giving his son. And his son must die on Passover because his son is Passover. And yet all of these men, for their evil reasons, for their evil purposes, will make their own decisions. It's like Peter told the people of Israel on the day of Pentecost. He says, Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, that's what God's doing. He's giving his son because he so loves the world. That's God's part. Now here's the other people's part. You have taken by lawless hands and have crucified him and put him to death. That's your part. Now we go back to God. What's his part? Whom God raised up. That's how it works. Which means we don't know exactly how it works. But we know that it works. God's good intentions doesn't excuse the evil intentions of these men, nor their evil actions. But their evil intentions and their evil actions do not cancel out the love of God and the sovereignty of God to save the world. That's the way it works. So because God is sovereign, man is free. Never forget that. Never forget that. Because God is sovereign, we are free. And that's what we see operating here. In fact, the two main characters in this whole storyline and all of these moving parts and all of this fast action that we're going to see up through the crucifixion and the resurrection, all these characters coming in with their own part and their own reasons and their own angles, the two main characters in this whole plot are God the Father and God the Son. And we've already seen God the Father's role. He has given his Son because he so loved the world. Now we're going to look at the second main thing I want you to see here, and that is the role of the Son. I want us to see the obedience of Jesus, the Son. Throughout the events leading up to the cross, Jesus is the one person who knows exactly what is going to happen. He is going to be betrayed, arrested, framed, scourged, and crucified. And to all of that, Jesus says, Amen. Jesus walks this path not out of ignorance or naivety. Jesus, during all the first part of his ministry, stayed away from Jerusalem for the most part because he saw the scribes and Pharisees and everybody starting to get angry. It's going to provoke things to a head. It wasn't time for things to come to a head. Jesus retreats to Galilee. He retreats to the far outlands. He's avoiding conflict. That's been his M.O. from the beginning throughout his ministry. Avoid these conflicts. Don't bring things to a head. But then it becomes time becomes his time. It becomes time for him to die. And he sets his face toward Jerusalem. Now that everything is in a cauldron and it's all boiling, he's going straight towards Jerusalem and his disciples are like, Lord, what? what? Do you have some kind of death wish? Yeah, actually. He walks this path out of obedience to the Father. And that obedience is motivated by two things, faith and love. Faith and love. First of all, faith toward his Father. Jesus believes his Father's promise that Jesus goes to the cross bearing the sins of the world 
God is not going to leave him to suffer in decay. But God the Father is going to bring him out the other side of the grave. He's going to raise him up in a new glorified life, which he will give to his people and to the world through the Spirit. God's going to raise him up into heaven, seat him on his throne, and give him all power and authority in heaven and earth, and is also going to anoint him as high priest. Jesus believes what his Father says. The second thing is Jesus loves his Father. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I always do the things that please him. And that's the result of faith and love. When you have sincere faith and sincere love, what you have is a sincere, consuming desire to please the object of your faith and love. And that's what produces heartfelt obedience, faith and love. Faith and love for his father, love from his, for his brethren whom he will save, this produces eyes open, heartfelt obedience. Now, everything Jesus did in his life was obedient, but the crowning moment of his faith, of his love and his obedience was the cross. And therefore, more than any other act, it is that act that saves us. Paul put it this way in Philippians 2. Jesus, being in the form of God, in other words, he was God the Son before he became a man. But he didn't consider his equality with God, he did not consider his godness as something to clutch. In other words, it's something to keep him or prevent him from saving the world. No, instead he empties himself. He takes the form of a bondservant. He is incarnate. He comes in the likeness of man. And he's found as a man. But that's not enough. He humbles himself and he becomes obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Which was not only a really cruel way to die, it prolonged death. It drug it out prolonged it. And you have to remember the scourging too, because a lot of people died from scourging. The scourging and the cross, but it, and it's not only the cruelty and, and prolonging the suffering, it was the shame. Okay? It was a slave's death. Roman citizens didn't die on crosses. That was against the law. Okay? Paul was beheaded because he was a Roman citizen. Right? But Jesus endures the shame of the cross. Therefore, Paul says, therefore, because of this, because of this faith and love and obedience, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. And Paul tells us Jesus is the example of what it means to be a true son or daughter of God. He's the example of what it means to be a true disciple. Because Paul starts this whole passage in Philippians 2 by saying this, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. This is the heart and mind of a child of God. The third thing I want us to see is the faith of the woman who anointed Jesus. The only other person in this scene who seems to have a deep sense of what is really going on is this woman who anoints him with the expensive oil. And we know that what she did was very significant because Jesus pronounced, that wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will be told as a memorial to her. Now, in that regard, we need to see that it's the woman's act, it's what she does here, that will be memorialized. For the woman's identity is undisclosed in Scripture. We don't know her name, but we do know what she did. Now, the fact that the disciples don't really get 
what she gets, and therefore they don't get what she's doing as seen from their response. They're indignant. They think this is a big waste, that this uh, fragrant oil could have been sold and the money given to the poor. But we see Jesus rebuke them and say, leave her alone. She has done me a good work, a good service. So they didn't really understand fully what was going on or what this woman was doing. And I would submit that we still tend to not really understand. Because how often is this woman's act mentioned in the preaching of the gospel today? Like never? Jesus said what she has done will always be remembered wherever the gospel is preached. The fact that it is not tells me that we still don't really understand what was going on here. So that's the question we need to ask ourselves. What was it about this woman's act that makes it so deserving of remembrance? Well, we know that it was a very expensive oil. Mark's Gospel says the value of the oil was over 300 denarii, which was a year's wages at that time. So to put it in today's term, even if we just take the minimum wage, which is $7.25 an hour, the oil would cost $15,000. $15,000 for one anointing. If we use more of an average full-time wage today, the value would be around $42,000. So the point is, this was very, very expensive oil. It was basically like this woman poured somewhere between a pint and a quart of liquid gold on Jesus' head. And the expense of the woman's oil here is contrasted in the story with the small sum, 30 pieces of silver, that Judas accepts to betray Jesus in verse 15. Now, in the Old Testament law, 30 pieces of silver was the amount that a master would receive for the wrongful death of a slave. So this was the value of a slave's life. That is the value of Jesus' life as assessed by the rulers and by Jesus. I mean, by Judas. But the woman obviously sees Jesus' life as much more valuable than that. Obviously, she had some kind of access to money. We don't know if she was wealthy. We don't know how she got this. But what she did and the amount of money that it's worth is the kind of thing that you do by trying to tell someone, you're worth the world to me, basically. You're worth the world to me. And therefore, I'm going to take somewhere between a pint and a quart of liquid gold, and I'm just going to pour it out on your head and let it run off onto the ground. So it was very, very valuable. She's making a sacrifice to do this, but expense alone was not the key. Because if it's just expense alone, then certainly the disciples would have some kind of point about selling it and using the proceeds for ministry to the poor. See, to the, to the Jews, by the teachings of the rabbis, giving of alms, giving of assistance to help the poor was one of the prime Hebrew virtues. And that's true all the time. But that was particularly emphasized during times of pilgrimage to the temple, such as Passover. as it's when a Jew was supposed to go out of their way to give alms to the poor. So it's not the expense alone. It's the fact that the expense was appropriate to the person and the occasion. It's not the money alone. It's the fact that the expense is appropriate to the person, Jesus, and the occasion, his death. 
But once again, this woman seems to have some deep sense of what is about to happen to Jesus. And it's something that seems to have eluded his disciples. And there seems to be more. He says, she has anointed me for burial. Now, it's interesting that in the rabbinical ranking of good works, now, we already know that giving alms and helping the poor is way up there. But there's one thing that was higher, a higher duty, a higher good work, and that was ministering to somebody in their death, giving them an honored and proper burial, basically ministering to somebody in, in their death, was even higher. That's something I think we ought to take note of when we think about ministry today. Um, to the extent that the rabbis had any wisdom, and I think they had some wisdom, um, ministering to somebody in their death is a, uh, a very, very, very high um, act of faith and love. We know that the Bible tells us that God, precious in the eyes of the Lord, of the death of his saints. And therefore, ministering to somebody in their time of death would seem to be very important for us as well. But there's something else going on here because she anoints his head. And in the Old Testament, anointing someone's head in this way was associated with uh, coronating them as king or inducting them or, or, as high priests. That's what it's associated with in the Old Testament law. As Jesus noted in John chapter 13, verse 31, his obedient crucifixion is what qualified him for glorification. It's what qualified him to be crowned king and anointed as high priest. And so in John's gospel, when Judas goes out to betray him, Jesus says this, Now the Son of Man is glorified. That all seems to be what is going on here, both ministering to him and anointing him for his burial and also in kind of a preliminary way, recognizing him and anointing him as king and high priest. In the end, we don't know precisely what this woman knew, but she certainly seemed to have some sense of the moment here, and she performed an extraordinary act of love and loyalty and faith toward Jesus. Well, The last thing I want us to see is the centrality of the cross of Christ. You think about all these different people here with all that's going on, all the hubbub in Jerusalem, all these people plotting and planning. You think of disciples who in some way understand and yet don't understand. They're Jesus' disciples, his followers, and yet they seem to be, they don't really understand what's going on. You've got the rulers, you've got them plotting, you've got Judas betraying, you've got other people oblivious, people coming to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. What possibly could the fate of this one guy from Galilee, how important really could that be in the big scheme of things? given everything that is going on at this time. Well, heaven and earth are about to change forever. This is the central event. Not anything that's going on at the temple. Not anything that's happening at the Sanhedrin. This is the central event. This is what it's all about. And amidst all of these different people doing their own thing for their own reasons, there looms the cross of Jesus and whether they knew it or not, know it or not, like it or not, all of these people are defined by where they stand in terms of the cross 
of Jesus Christ. That's one of the reasons why I think this woman is honored. She's defined by where she stood in terms of the cross of Christ, and where she stood was to anoint him in his death, I think, as king and high priest. But here's the real point for us. It's the same thing for everyone who has ever lived in this busy world. It's the same truth for everyone who lives in this busy postmodern world of ours. And if we are anything, we are busy. I don't know that we're doing anything important, but we're busy. We're texting. We're doing all these things all the time. Busy, busy, busy. We have things. Everything's characterized. That works for me. That doesn't work for me. That's true for you. I'm happy for you. It's not true for me. We're busy. Know it or not, like it or not, everyone in this busy world of ours is defined by where they stand in terms of the cross of Christ. In his application, I just want to encourage you and me for us to recover what this woman understood. The centrality of the cross of Christ never goes away. It doesn't go away tomorrow. It doesn't go away today. It doesn't matter what's happening tomorrow. It doesn't matter what's going on. It doesn't matter what's going on at work, what's going on at home. The cross of Christ is still the central event of human history. And we need to recover that. We need to remember that. Because even as Christians, as disciples, like these disciples, we can get busy and understand without really understanding. We can understand without really appreciating. They understood, but they didn't appreciate. These are the men that Jesus Christ is going to entrust the gospel. They're the foundation of the church. It's happening right then and there. And they don't really know. They don't really grasp it. How much more can we be like that 2,000 years later? Well, what will happen if we do remember the centrality of the cross of Christ? Number one, our appreciation for the sovereignty and the love of God the Father will go up. Our sense of his sovereignty over everything in our lives everything that's happening around us, of him working all things for good, that will go way, way up in our lives. We will have that sense and we will act accordingly. Number two, our desire to, as it were, anoint Jesus with expensive oil will go up. Our desire to love and serve Jesus is going to go up, just like we see with this woman. And that is going to translate into acts of kindness Great and small, great and small, because remember, Jesus took note of the widow who put two mites in the treasury. It's not just a matter of much. It's that each of them, these women, through what they did, gave what they had. They gave what they had. They gave what God had given to them. They gave of themselves to Jesus in service to God. And so our desire and love to serve Jesus will go up. That will translate to acts of kindness, great and small, to one another. Because Jesus is not here for us to pour oil on his head. Jesus says, whatever you do or you don't do to the least of these who belong to me, you have done or not done to me. 
And Jesus doesn't, small things don't elude his notice. Two mites going into the treasury, does, he doesn't miss that. He says a cup of water, not even a cup of water will be forgotten. He will remember that. One of the things we see in Scripture, and you've heard me mention this many times, but I just have to keep bringing it up, is what this woman did is what the whole book of Ruth is about. Acts of faith and love and loyalty and hard times. And the book of Ruth is about what God does when he's just beginning to turn the tide from the low point from the wickedness, from the darkest hour, when he's just beginning to turn the tide so that you start to see some light in the east. What does it look like when God starts to move that way? It looks like the book of Ruth. It looks like ordinary people. Naomi and Ruth had nothing. Boaz was a rich man. Rich or poor, it means doing acts of kindness and love and loyalty to God's people, to one another. That's what it looks like. That's what God always does when he's going to do something big. So this is what it will look like in our lives if we recover the centrality of the cross of Christ, which I urge you to do in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.